Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Today, we begin our end-of-the-year series, In Memoriam, where we look back and commemorate the lives of some of the players, coaches, and other figures who passed away in the year 2020. Andrew, how are you? I am doing well today, Dan. You know, obviously there's a lot of people we're going to cover, and in some ways that's a sad thing because it means a lot of important sports figures have uh, passed away in the last year or so or in the last year in 2020. But it's also a good opportunity to talk about some people who we may otherwise not talk about except in passing. Obviously, some people would have come up naturally otherwise, but, you know, there's a few guys on the list just looking at that don't know how often they or how frequently they would have come up. And while it's sad, somebody's death is is sometimes a good way to make sure you take time to reflect on their contributions in this case to uh, to their specific sports or the sports world in general. Absolutely. And we want to assess their careers in the various sports, uh, both in the positive and the negative and not necessarily sort of judgments of them as human beings. But if there were negative or critical aspects to their careers, if somebody was, you know, didn't come up big in a bad moment and didn't come up big in a big moment or made a bad coaching decision or something like that. That certainly is a part of that person's legacy, but we want to make clear that the main goal here is to commemorate and honor. And just as Andrew said, just sort of discuss all of these individuals who left us in the year 2020. You'll also hear as we go on some occasional drop-ins. First of all, I've come up with a number of sound clips of some of these guys that I'll drop in here and there. And then also some of our fellow hosts on the Sports History Network dropped in for a few minutes here and there uh, in previously recorded segments to talk about one player or another. So that's something else you can look forward to. I also think it is probably worth having full disclosure with the audience. This is attempt uh, number three on our parts to record this episode. We first started to try to record one week ago and had many a technical problem. And then on Saturday of this past week, we actually did do a full recording lots of good stuff there and then when we went back to edit the sound we soon found that it was uh, basically unusable Uh, so hopefully the fact that this is the second time around that we're doing this is going to practice makes perfect maybe so this is our first step we anticipate that this will take three maybe four episodes we obviously won't know until we're finished also even as 
we're recording in the month of December has gone on. There have been a few additional figures that have passed away this year. So this is the type of project where we won't know entirely where it's going to end until we're entirely finished with it. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Sure. And I guess the one th- uh, sort of thing I just wanted to mention in relation to what you just said about us having recorded previously is we're obviously going to be going over the same kind of ground anyway, but there's a chance we may slip up and refer to something that we talked about in the previous one. So hopefully that's kept to a minimum because it should still be the same subject matter, but I will try to avoid references to an episode that no one will ever hear. So (laughs) the lost episode, sort of like the honeymooners. Yes. All right. So uh, what we, what we're planning to do here is sort of take this in chronological order of when each person passed away. So why don't we start right away with David Stern, who was born in 1942 and died on January the 1st. Stern was the fourth commissioner of the NBA, serving for 30 years from 1984 to 2014. During this time, he saw the league transform from a second-tier sport struggling to attract viewers to a global enterprise with its stars recognizable around the world. Stern's tenure saw the addition of seven new teams in the NBA, bringing the total number of teams in the league to 30. Occasionally criticized for his heavy-handed methods, Stern nonetheless will go down as one of the most influential and popular commissioners in American sports history. Right, and I think with David Stern, there's so much to, to talk about in terms of where the sport was when he took over and where the sport was when he left. Certainly, it's not a straight line in terms of if you think about both in the public consciousness and probably in reality as well. The NBA was in sort of a low point in terms of popularity and and image in the late seventies. And that all started to turn around in 1979 with magic Johnson and Larry bird coming into the league. Obviously by the time Stern took over five years later, they already each won a couple of championships or each won one championship or two. And, you know, we're starting to play in the first of several straight or several NBA finals against each other. And, the league was taking off. So it wasn't like he came in right at the beginning of that, but it was a time in the league where you still had games being tape delayed and shown at midnight in certain markets and, and things like that. And he took over sort of on the upswing of that. And then you had the whole nineties with me, uh, with Michael Jordan, where he's sort of inextricably linked to, that era. And then the other thing that that you just mentioned that I think really is important too, is adding the seven teams to the league. And some of those, you know, the ones that jump out in my mind being Miami specifically, and more recently here, Toronto, but really if you focus on a team like Miami, those have become cornerstone franchises in the league. The only one that really has struggled or that did struggle was Vancouver. You figure it's huge in Toronto the NBA has done incredibly well in both Orlando and Miami. Now, obviously having LeBron helped, but even before that, it was a team with Pat Riley and Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning. This year after that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Minnesota has always done relatively well. Uh, I don't, Minnesota might not be a great, I mean, they had a, some nice years with Kevin Garnett, but since then it's been mostly, you know, but that doesn't mean it's bad to put them there. I just don't know that they're on the level of some of those other teams. Probably not. And then Charlotte, now they moved eventually, but I think almost immediately after leaving Charlotte, everybody sort of acknowledged that it was a mistake. And now there's another team back in Charlotte 
Stern was big on pushing for new arenas, pushing for better and more lucrative cable and broadcast TV deals. Without his support, you would never have seen the 1992 Olympics featuring NBA players with the Dream Team, which is something that a lot of people attribute the explosion in international popularity of the NBA. They attribute it to that incident. So he had that vision in so many different ways, and he was able to sort of straddle the line between being a business entrepreneur and growing the league's business, but also you always knew that he was somebody who just really loved the product itself as well. He just was a guy who liked basketball. Yeah. And I think overall labor relations pretty good. I mean, you had the, the lockout in 99, which was a big deal. And he ended up with a shortened season, but to the best of my knowledge, that's been the only work stoppage, at least in season that he, or was he still there for the one in 2014 or it was 12 and yeah, he was there for that too. Okay. But you know, no, no season enders, no whole seasons being missed. Mentioned the dream team and the international expansion, which I think is huge when you listen to, you know, if you look at any NBA roster these days, there's at least a handful of guys from different countries and it's not all the same country. You'll see guys from Argentina. You'll see guys from China, African countries like Cameroon. It's all over the place. And then one additional thing I did want to mention, which, you know, when we were talking about new teams, there's one that this wasn't a new team and it was certainly very unpopular at the time, but from his standpoint, it was a risk and it, that did work, which was letting the Sonics move to Oklahoma city, which if you're a basketball purist or you really think there should be a team in Seattle and it should be the supersonics. And hopefully that'll happen again someday. But Oklahoma city was not considered a professional sports market. And they were going off of half a season when the Hornets were there during in the aftermath of hurricane Katrina and they moved the franchise there. And it's been a very good and popular and profitable franchise since then. So they went out on a limb on that one and it worked. Again, people in Seattle aren't necessarily going to be happy about it, but it did work. Before we move on, I think there's probably two things that you might consider knocks on Mm -hmm. Stern, one of which I think you can attribute directly to him and one of which you can't. The one that I think you can attribute to him was that he could be a little bit, as I said in the introduction, he could be a little bit heavy-handed at times. Uh, The biggest criticism I know was when the league was – I don't know whether this was after the Donald Sterling thing when the league was sort of overseeing the – Clippers or sort of if it was before. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This was never mind. I'm, I'm, Sterling thing wouldn't have been him. Yeah. No, and I'm mixing up two different things. I'm sorry. This wasn't the Sterling thing. The Sterling thing is not what I'm talking about. I was talking more about – I was talking about Chris Paul. But uh, Chris Paul didn't get traded from the Clippers. He got traded to the Lakers from another team. And then they vetoed it and he ended up with the Clippers. So the Clippers don't really come into play in this story. When the attempt was made to trade Chris Paul to the Lakers and Stern basically stepped in and vetoed it for quote unquote basketball reasons, that was basically him trying to prevent the Lakers from getting too dominant. And a lot of people, I think, rightly criticized him for that. The other thing that, again, this one I don't think is really his fault, but there was always sort of this low level of accusation that he was using the officials to influence the results of playoff games 
so that he would get the teams that he wanted in for TV and other monetary purposes. Now, it certainly was never, I don't even think, even think the biggest accusers said, okay, you're doing this and you're instructing the refs, call it more on this team than on that team. But I think that there was always sort of this rumor that he would have certain refs assigned to certain games trying to engineer a certain outcome. Now, I don't know how true that was, but there was at least enough smoke there to make a lot of people entertain that accusation. And I guess you'd have to say that the Tim Donahue, on that note, the fact that Tim Donahue was allowed to operate without being detected for as long as he was certainly wasn't a something David Stern was aware of, but you could make the argument, well, that happened on your watch. It's, it's a knock on you that you weren't aware of it or didn't find out any sooner. So, you know, I guess that would go there too. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go from a man who built his legacy over the course of several decades to somebody who's basically built his entire legacy on one afternoon in October. Do you want to read the next little biography? Don Larson, born in 1929, passed away on January 1st as well. A journeyman right-handed pitcher with a career record of 81 and 91. Larson began his career with the St. Louis Browns and accompanied the team when it moved to Baltimore in 1954. That year, he led the league in losses, compiling an almost unheard-of record of 3-21. and 21. Traded to the Yankees in 1955, he spent five years in New York, appearing in four World Series and winning two championship rings. Larson's most memorable day came in Game 5 of the 1956 World Series, where he pitched the only perfect game in World Series history against a Brooklyn Dodger team with four future Hall of Famers in its lineup. Because of this singular achievement, Larson was favorite at Yankee Old Timers Day for several decades after his retirement. Larson is ready, gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no hitter, a perfect game for Don Larson. Yogi Berra runs out there. He leaps on Larson, and he's swarmed by his teammates. Listen to this crowd roar. The first World Series no hitter, a performance by Don Larson. So let's take a look here at the pitching rotation of the 1956 Yankees. You got Whitey Ford and then you got Johnny Cooks, Don Larson, Tom Sturdivant and Bob Turley. And then if you just look ahead to the following year, you have Bobby Shantz, you have Bob Grimm, Art Dittmar, Tommy Byrne. These were all sort of the names of Yankee pitchers in the 1950s. There was Whitey Ford, and then there was everybody else. Some guys would have good years, some years. Some guys would have bad years. But it was really sort of a, from about 1954 on, it was a rotating cast for the next seven or eight years of Whitey Ford and then other guys, good major league pitchers who made their way in and out. So, Don Larson, with his career losing record, is not somebody you would have heard of had he not pitched this perfect game in 1956. And obviously, anybody who pitches a perfect game anytime is impressive. And pitching a perfect game in game five of a World Series is even more impressive. But when you figure this was a team that he pitched again, this sort of vaunted Brooklyn Dodger team that we'll talk more about in a little bit, 
Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella, not to mention Gil Hodges, who a lot of people, myself included, think should be in the Hall of Fame. So a really just a very, very legendary day as a part of a legendary rivalry from somebody you would never have expected it from. Yeah, and the the last nobody knew it at the time, but the last one of those Dodger Giant or Dodger Yankee World Series, the first one after the Yankees had lost to the Dodgers the year before, and that like you mentioned it happening in the World Series. Obviously, it was the only perfect game, and still the only perfect game in World Series history. Only perfect game in the postseason for a very long time until Roy Halladay with the Phillies did it against Cincinnati in, I believe it was game one of a divisional series. The fa- and then the fact that it was the Yankees. It was those Yankee teams that won all those World Series and say what you will about the Yankees. They honor their sort of history. They have so much more history to go off of that they honor it. You know, I think they're the only franchise that still regularly does an old timers day. And although this was not much more than, or it was nothing more than coincidence, sort of the modern parallels where in 1998, David Wells throws the perfect game, first Yankee perfect game since Don Larson, he and Don Larson went to the same high school in Southern California. We're both known as partiers i think we discussed in our original episode that there were rumors from both of them about having gone out drinking the night before the game depending on how credible you want to consider those the next year when david Cohn throws the perfect game larson is in attendance because it's yogi berra day and it's one of berra's if not the first time he's been back at yankee stadium in years and he's there with larson as cone throws a perfect game so sort of the it kept, it was always going to be relevant, but it kept being sort of at the front of people's minds for those couple of years, too. Larson had gotten, he had started game two of the series and had gotten shelled. He hadn't even made it out of the second inning and was very surprised when Casey Stengel selected him to pitch in game five. He actually ended up playing, I, I believe he closed his career. By 1962, he was on the San Francisco Giants, and he actually makes one last postseason appearance with the World Series appearance with the Giants against the Yankees in 1962 in the World Series. So it's interesting. Things sort of come full circle there. It's funny to think how that one day you talk about Yankee history, had it not been for that day, he would not have been nearly as remembered, even close as he was in this sort of Yankee lore. We wouldn't be talking about him, probably. He would have been just another journeyman pitcher. So there are probably, there are Hall of Famers who played at the same time as Don Larson who are not known by half as many fans as know who Don Larson is. And then, you know, also, and just by the way, you see, he went to San Francisco after a stop in Kansas City, which that's, during that era was where the Yankees sent people when they didn't have any use for them anymore. But anytime they wanted somebody back, they would just get them back from Kansas city. Cause they were basically a minor league team for the Yankees. That's an episode at some point, I feel like. Yeah. So then he was with San Francisco for a few years. And then in 64, he went from San Francisco to Houston was with Houston in 64 and part of 65, then went to Baltimore in 65, back to Baltimore, and then came back in 1967 with the Cubs for three games, it looks like. had a He pitched to a nine ERA that year at 37 years old. And, you know, the, fav, the other thing that makes the Larson thing so iconic is just the very end when he gets the last out and Yogi jumps into his arms that – it, again, it was a World Series, perfect game, Yankees-Dodgers. It was always going to be iconic, but that's 
the second sentence anybody anytime anybody mentions that game that comes up pretty quickly absolutely all right well why don't we move on and talk about kobe bryant who was born in 1978 and died tragically in a plane crash on january 26th along with his daughter gianna and seven other people joining the los angeles lakers directly out of high school in 1996 bryant played 20 years with the team winning five championships and being named to 18 All-Star games, second only to fellow Laker Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Criticized for his immaturity early in his career, Bryant nonetheless partnered with Shaquille O'Neal and coach Phil Jackson to lead the team to three championships in a row from 2000 to 2002. After O'Neal's departure, Bryant emerged as the undisputed team leader, winning two additional championships in 2009 and 2010. Bryant was named NBA Finals MVP in both years and was also the league MVP in 2008. While best known for his scoring, Kobe was a strong defensive player as well and was named to the NBA All-Defensive Team 12 times. Yeah, and this, you know, is, is probably the biggest name on the list in terms of a death, and especially because of dying young and tragically his family or was his family one member of his family in any other year this would still be fresh in a lot of people's minds but obviously this was we had really two years this year we had three months or two and a half months between january and early march that was pre-coronavirus or pre the real pandemic aspect of coronavirus and then everything after that so this still while it happened this year, some in some ways feels like it happened a million years ago. But, you know, Kobe Bryant is a, he's almost a singular figure because he's very tough to compare. And I'm not talking specifically about his game. I just mean in the sort of perception of him and the career, he's very difficult to compare to almost anyone else. You know, he's a sort of a celebrity coming right out of high school, I think he very famously, when he was in high school, went his one of his proms, I'm assuming his senior prom with the singer Brandy, who was huge at the time, grew up overseas in Italy, and then came back to go to high school in, in suburban Philadelphia, right to the Lakers. I was drafted by the Hornets, and they trade him to the Lakers. Right to the Lakers is their back, you know, starting to go back on an upswing with Shaq, and Phil comes in, and three championships in a row. And then it all blows apart after the 04 season. And, you know, Phil leaves, writes a book that is very critical of Kobe. About a year later, Phil decides he's going to come back. Him and Kobe are thick as thieves again. They go to the three straight finals at the end of the decade, win two of them. And then there's sort of the denouement where he's on a bad team. He's an older guy. Is he, he's probably in the way of other guys developing at that point in the franchise moving forward, but has he earned the right to do that given his stature? And then we'll obviously get into sort of the public perception of him, but he's just, he's a very tough guy to compare anyone to really. In 18 years, he sort of almost had four different tenures with the Lakers. He sort of had, the early on, he was drafted the same year that Shaq signed with the team. It was 96, and that was right after Magic Johnson had had his aborted comeback and left. And that was a team with Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones, Cedric Sabalos. That was, and Del Harris was the coach. And that was a good sort of, you know, mid-seed, second-round playoff team. 
he leaves, Del Harris gets fired, they make some trades, then Phil comes in, and you got the dynasty team, three in a row, Kobe to Shaq, that whole thing. Then Shaq leaves, and there's that sort of interregnum period, and then you've got the years with Pau Gasol, Ron Artest, those guys. And then those guys all leave, and you forget Kobe hung around for another four or five years, and like you said, was just kind of there. And I don't know, I feel like Kobe Bryant in a lot of ways is sort of a, you can sort of interpret him however you want. Because, and again, this is not even necessarily, or this isn't about what happened in his personal life. But if you want to see immaturity and selfishness, you can see a lot of that. I remember one playoff game one year where he'd been criticized for shooting too much. So he basically didn't shoot the whole first half as sort of a, a way to prove some sort of a point. But then again, he was a guy who, unlike, say, a, a good example, and I was thinking about this the other day, was Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving sort of hated being the second banana to LeBron. But when Kyrie Irving was traded to Boston and had the opportunity to lead the team on his own, he, he showed in a lot of ways that he necessarily wasn't up to the task. Kobe, for all his immaturity in the early years, did develop into a team leader and was obviously the undisputed superstar and leader of those teams that won two titles and almost won a third. Yeah. And that was a team that was built around him. They went out and got Gasol to compliment him. And I think, like you said, it's a very different thing than a guy who, you know, for better or worse, we don't know. I mean, we have, there was glimpses, but we didn't get to see a full run of Scottie Pippen as the lead dog of the Bulls. You know, they got that year and a half when Jordan came back and Pippen acquitted himself well, but then Jordan was right back. Kobe is a guy we saw as sort of a, not role player, but he was definitely the supporter of Shaq those first few years. And then we got to see him as the lead dog of championship teams. And he proved that, Yes, he could do it, and by the way, probably deserved more credit than he got, even though he got plenty of credit. Probably deserved more credit than he got for those first three titles as well, in retrospect, after you see what he did you know, previously, or uh, later on. Yeah, a few things. First of all, I think people forget just how close in 2004 Kobe was to being the one that left. I have a, uh, back when DVDs and DVD box sets were such a big thing, I think that the NBA came out with a bunch of box sets about the Celtics, Knicks, Sixers, Lakers. And I'm, I'm staring at a few of them on my, on my shelf here. And what it was, was it would be a little documentary and then there'd be five or six games from the team's history. Really cool stuff. And the Lakers one came out in 2004, which was right after the year when they'd had Peyton and Malone and lost and Phil's last year. And you know, the year Phil wrote the book about and all that stuff. 
and if I if I was if I pulled out and looked at the pictures that are on the cover of that DVD, in addition to all the guys you might expect, West, Baylor, Kareem, Magic, there's a picture of Kurt Rambis, there's a picture of Michael Cooper and Gail Goodrich, guys who are not considered all time greats. Not a single picture of Kobe. So there was a time period when the Lakers were very much ready to move on from Kobe and were sort of just as an organization starting to distance themselves. The other thing that I would mention is I think sometimes because he's such a cartoon character in some ways and he's kind of been seen as a lovable, you know, sort of a lovable teddy bear, you forget that Shaq in his own day was kind of a jerk too. You know, he, oh. he, he clashed with people in Orlando he had all sorts of issues with sort of being accused of not practicing hard enough or not taking the time to rehab his injuries was it when he was in LA. And that was one of the conflicts between him and Kobe. So I think a lot of people, maybe because of the rape allegations, maybe because of Phil and his book, maybe because Shaq has turned into sort of, you know, almost a Yogi Berra type figure where everybody loves him. I think you forget that there was plenty for Kobe to get frustrated with Shaq about on the maturity front too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you also have to just remember what age Kobe was at the time of some of that, just to circle back real quick. And then I had a couple of points. The one thing I would say when you mentioned all the guys on the cover of the DVD and you mentioned Kurt Rambis, that was eye candy. I mean, you have to admit when you see Kurt Rambis in his his goggles with his really high shorts and his, out of control facial hair, but, but anyway, um, so if you don't know what Kurt Rambis, you can't see what he looks like now. Cause now he looks normal, yeah. but Ooh, then Kurt Rambis Lakers and it's, it's, so, it's bizarre. So anyway, um, you know, Kobe, this was before my time, but I, I went to school. I went to college in Philadelphia in 2004 was my freshman year. So it was a good, almost 10 years since Kobe been there, but having gone to high school at, Lower Marion, right outside the school, there were right outside the city. And his father, Jellybean Bryant, went to LaSalle in the 70s and then was a coach at LaSalle before I think he left Kobe's senior year of high school, maybe to focus on Kobe's recruitment or NBA potential. So there's always, there's still LaSalle fans around who had this pipe dream for a couple of years that, oh, maybe Jellybean's kid will come here. But, uh, he was never going to college, and if he was going to college, he wasn't going to LaSalle. But I've, I've, you know, seen a lot of, like, if you go to the Palestra, the famous arena in Philadelphia where Penn plays and where tons of college basketball in Philadelphia history, they have a little museum, and one of the things is all the high school players who played there, and one of them was when Kobe, when they won their, like, city area title. And so you see pictures of him in that building, and even though he never – played in Philadelphia and didn't really seem to overly, you know, he spent most of his early childhood overseas, didn't seem to have too, too much connection to Philadelphia. There were people in sort of the high school basketball circles who still remembered just how good he was and would tell stories about him. And then the other thing I wanted to mention with him was just, he was a very important person in the in that 2008 Redeem team, the Olympic team where all the guys played again in the Beijing Olympics after the 04 team won the bronze and lost a couple of times. And so in 08, they were all playing Kobe and LeBron and he was sort of the, 
I don't know if he was officially the captain, but he was sort of the one who made sure those guys were seen going to different events at the Olympics and talking up other athletes and spending time sort of around other games. And there's a quote that I've always really liked where he was doing a press conference and talking about all the events he'd been to and not just sprinting and swimming. That was the Michael Phelps year. But, you know, he was talking about the different things he went to. And then he said, yeah, I'm upset we have, I don't know if it was a game or a practice or whatever, and I can't go to the synchronized swimming final this today. And all the reporters laughed at him. And he said something like, I'm not joking. He's like, that's the hardest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, that's anecdotal and it's a little thing, but it shows that maybe, and then you hear about the things with, with him and his daughters, one of whom was, was tragically killed with him, about being really into being a, a, a father and being sort of a champion of, of women's athletics and things later on in his life post-retirement that there's always going to be more to him than the, than the caricature and what might've happened in Denver 15 years ago, not to diminish any of that, but as usual, the, the full picture is a little more complicated than just reading headlines from 10, 15 years ago. And from an on the court point of view, he is probably the second best shooting guard in NBA history. So, and and then, just, you know, we got, we can't gloss over a had a game. It was during that sort of intermediary period between the Shaq teams and the, and the rebuilds where they became a championship contender, but he scored 81 points in a game in, I want to say it was January or February of 2006 against the Raptors. It was a Sunday afternoon, I think, cause I remember checking sort of my, my like internet that night in my college dorm room. And I was like, Oh my God. Cause I didn't, you know, you always growing up here, Will Chamberlain scored 100 points. Like, well, nobody's ever going to get near that again. And I don't know that 81 is near 100, but it's certainly more near 100 than I ever thought I'd see anyone get ever again. And before we move on, I do have to just, this was around that same era where he had a quote about those teams and why he shot so much. And he said, I almost won an MVP with Smush Parker and Kwame Brown on my team. I was shooting 45 times a game. What was I supposed to do? Pass it to Chris Mim or Kwame Brown? Which again, <laughs> it's probably not something a good teammate should say, but it is objectively hilarious. So, Absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Kobe Bryant. He was probably, if not the most prominent sports figure to pass away in 2020. He's almost certainly the biggest story of those who passed away in 2020, not only because of how young he was, but also because of the nature in which he died and his daughter was on the plane with him. And everybody obviously knows the story. So I am pleased and honored to be joined by Oz, the host of the Truly the Goats podcast on the Sports History Network. Oz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about Kobe, your podcast, and I I don't mean to insult myself or any of the other colleagues on the network, but your podcast, Truly the Goats, is probably the most unique podcast on the Sports History Network and one of the more unique ones that I've come across as far as sports history podcasts are concerned in general. And I actually was a guest on yours a few weeks back talking about the super fight with Rocky Marciano and Muhammad Ali. But before we get into Kobe, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your podcast, Truly the Goats. Thanks for the nice things you say about it. I'm glad you find it unique. Um, 
I've, I found podcasts such as those at the Sports History Network that talk about sports history. And I've found some other podcasts that talk about ancient history. But never, or I shouldn't say never, I, I don't want to sound too pretentious, but I'm trying to approach the show from the perspective of there is this continuity of sport in humanity, right? There, there is something about these abstract games, this thing that we do, which isn't quite art and it isn't work. And like, so what is it? You know, why, why do we do this? And yet it's this thread through history. Now, not always in history have we had such complex sports as we have now. In fact, now is truly in the history of humanity, a golden age for sport worldwide. If you think of the variety and the access and the number of people actually participating in real organized complex sports. But, you know, these things have happened in the past. I mean, Rome was a great sporting culture. And I guess the whole show was triggered by it. I believe that this is in the introductory episode that I cut for the show. The whole thing was triggered by the way we throw around greatest of all time. In fact, it's gotten so ubiquitous that we now have to use the acronym. We, we, we now say GOAT because we say it so often. It's every time there's a Super Bowl or a rookie sensation in any sport or, you know, a new team uh, wins two or three championships mm-hmm. in a row. And there's this rush, greatest of all time, greatest game of all time, you know, greatest left tackle, greatest left-handed relief pitcher of all time. You know, and and then, and you know, only I think this is funny, but I used to hear that and I would say, and I would think to myself, oh yeah, but you know, in Rome, they had some great like knuckleballers, right? It's like, (laughs) let's have some perspective. I mean, folks have been playing, you know, uh, sumo in Japan for at least 500 years in organized fashion, maybe 2000, you know beyond that. Uh, Cricket is at least 500 years old. Let's have some perspective when we throw around all time, right? And so I thought, hey, let's look at some really all-time great athletes. Let's look at like the greatest athletes in the last 3,000, 4,000 years. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking, you know, (laughs) that appeals to the sports history geek. And it's really cool. And what what are some of the topics you've covered so far? Oh, wow. Okay, well, let's see. I can probably even do this in order. Start off with really a sensation, uh, a guy that was really an inspiration for me since I was a kid. And, and of course, doing this show, Jim Thorpe is the first one. Now, of course, he was an Olympic athlete who won the pentathlon and the decathlon in the same year. Okay, was a professional baseball player, was a professional football player, and was one of the great college football players uh, who played under, you know, of course, Pop Warner, who now has, you know, an entire league or an entire level of football named after him, like Babe Ruth, to give you some idea of how big he was. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, Thorpe is hardly a household name. I mean, just recently, in fact, after I did the podcast, the NFL did their NFL 100, which is like the most important 100 players in NFL history, right? Or yeah. the best or the great. He's not in there. Yep. Now, I know why he's not in there. The reason why he's not in there is because they don't have video. 
Okay. They don't have, all they have is like some still shots. Maybe they have like 20 seconds of black yeah. and white stuff, silence stuff. You know, okay. I understand, but still because of this, we forget, we forget. And that's really what, you know, again, that's one of the themes that sort of precipitate. Um, so let's see, did that, we did gladiators, did Angelo Mosca, the greatest heel of all time, uh, a Hall of Fame Canadian football and professional wrestler. Uh, let's see. Babe Didrikson's Zaharias, probably the greatest female athlete of all time. I really can't think of who might be second. Uh, again, a multi-sport athlete like Thorpe. Talks to Michael Jordan. We will be talking some more Michael Jordan at some point uh, because, of course, I will be covering the Dream Team, yeah. which is probably... I don't think it's without question the greatest team ever assembled, at least, you know, of the past 100, 150 years, let's say. So you you're know. really, you're all over the place, which I think is great. Yes, of you, course. Of course. You, yes. That's the point. You go of sport. You go back, but then you also will talk about, you know, something much more relatively modern, like Michael Jordan. So really, you know, I've listened to a few episodes. I think it's great. Really enjoyed it and really enjoyed being on the network with you. Let's talk a little bit about Kobe. Now, you are a Laker fan. How long have you been a Laker fan for? Well, I've been since, since I was a kid. Since I was a kid. Um, basically, like, like a lot of people, I really was awakened to the sport by the year, you know, first Magic and Larry Bird played in the NCAA basketball finals. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they were like, they were both first round picks or first for number one overall picks or whatever. Yeah. They were going to face off at the pros. And we knew that this was like the rebirth of the Celtics and the Lakers, you know, the great historical franchises. Mm -hmm. The Celtics had not been bad uh, actually at this time. And uh, so, uh, you know, my brother and I were both young, maybe nine and eight and, uh, you know, just discovering sports and whatever, but we, we love baseball and football, but here comes this new thing because of course, before that, before Stern, before the eighties, you know, basketball was like roller derby. <laughs> you know, it was, it was not on the level. It was not on the level it is today. I dare say in the North uh, hockey was well bigger. Than probably true probably true before 1980 before bird and johnson really mm -hmm. and 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 all these guys coming in and uh and so my brother and i said hey basketball cool and my brother decided well i like larry bird <laughs> so like okay i'll go with magic <laughs> and so since then i've been a lakers fan and he's been a celtics fan so and you've and you've both had some sort of some good years and some down years i would say over the last uh over the last 40 so you go through the whole the Showtime era, the Kareem Magic worthy years, and then you have a couple down years, and Kareem retires, and Pat Riley leaves, and obviously Magic first he tests positive for HIV, and then he comes back, and then he retires again, and he comes back again, then he retires, and he coached the team for a few games in between there. So oh, lots God. going on, lots going on with Magic, and then in '96 is when both Shaq and Kobe come to the Lakers. As a Laker fan, what were your sort of initial thoughts of having both those guys come to the team around that time period? Okay, well, Shaq was an established quantity, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we, I mean, he was the biggest man, you know, in the game, literally and figuratively. Not quite, because Hakeem had, had made him look really bad in the finals, uh, 
that one year. Yeah, 95. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or nothing sweep. Yeah, later he said his dad sat him down and told him, you gave that man too much respect. And that was exactly <laughs> what it was. He was deferring to Hakeem at every turn, but off the subject. But the thing is, you know, again, this is like the, the 90s. This is the mid-90s. Uh, this is even before the big internet boom. So, you know, Kobe was like, you know, we saw the, the press conference. You know, I'm going to take my talents to the NBA. By the way, LeBron stole that line. And, you know, so we knew that. And, you know, you, you, you forget, too, until he was, I think, 16, he, was, he played ball in Italy. Yeah. You know, he, he did his high school in Italy, mm-hmm. you know. And so even folks who were you know, as crazy as you could get about high school ball knew very little about him. He played, for, he played in Philadelphia for a couple of years. And uh, so we didn't know about him. And, you know, Vlade, Vlade Divac, who we traded for, for Kobe, was, you know, he, he, we loved him. We, we did. I mean, in his rookie year in the States, because he had played in Yugoslavia, then Yugoslavia, before that. But his first, his rookie year in the States, uh, they were in the finals. Yeah. That was the year they lost to uh, Michael's to Michael. uh, yep. championship team. And uh, so, so, you know, we loved him and he was there and, you know, those were lean years, but we were still in the playoffs almost every year. It was Nick Van Exel and Cedric Zabalos and Eddie and Jones. Yeah. And Eddie Jones and mm-hmm. Vlade and Vlade was there the whole time. So, so he was, he was beloved, but geez, I mean, when, when, when you're bringing in Shaq, you got to face facts. And, and if they're willing to give up the number 14 pick, who turned out to be pretty good for us. So you do it. It was pretty exciting. Absolutely. So they go on and Phil comes in eventually and they yes. win they win the three championships and then there's the the year with Carl Malone and Peyton and they go and obviously this feud between yeah. Shaq and Kobe starts to develop. And I guess my question for you is sort of two prong. Number one sort of what is your memory of those years and those feuds between Shaq and Kobe? And then as a fan, did you have a side? Were you a Shaq person, a Kobe person? Uh, you know, you know I, I was thinking about, you know, the top moments, you know, the top, like, like what are the iconic, Kobe moments and yeah you know, you know for me I mean I do have one but uh, that's not this but but for me I was I, I'm tempted to go with basically the entire 1991-2000 season I mean okay Phil Jackson comes in he brings in Ron Harper who can, it cannot be underestimated was really um, you know he kept those guys organized let's say he kept them cool you know when it got when the pressure turned on in the playoffs he kept them under control uh he was great at that he was great at running the triangle too uh which phil brought in and these guys were unstoppable you know it's you get that i mean i mean what phil did was and and this is the power of phil jackson he's his stars coach right he taught them how to be one of the greatest one twos of all time Seriously, then okay, yeah. here's me. I hate using that expression, but you know, okay, ever. Let's say one of the best one twos the NBA has seen. Honestly. And and those three years when Shaq was in shape, which is what caused the rift, and he was dominant, and you know, 
it was, those guys were unstoppable. It was brilliant. It was amazing. It was, you know, the, at one point Shaq tried to get them nicknamed Thunder and Lightning. You know, that's exactly what it was. I mean, these guys could kill you two ways. You had to double team both of them. Like that's mathematically impossible. <laughs> You know, and that it was so great about those teams. So the thing is, like, was I a Kobe guy or was I a Shaq guy? I mean, the answer is yes. I mean, <laughs> no Lakers fan at that time wants that to be broken up. And and you know, basically, what it came down to is, and I mean this in the kindest possible way about basketball. Kobe was a sociopath. Yeah, right. For him, basketball was life. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, and, and and Shaq is like Shaq. You know, everybody loves Shaq, and he liked having a good time and 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 cutting rap, bad rap albums, and you know, stuff like this. And you know, he wanted to do team stuff and have parties and stuff. And you know, and he came to camp out of shape every year. So, just two more questions. First of all, we talked about the early team, sort of the first dynasty, the the Shaq years. Give me a little bit of your thoughts on the second set of years. And they didn't win three in a row, but they were in three finals in a row. Phil leaves and then comes back, and Kobe becomes the undisputed team leader. Give me your thoughts on those teams, that sort of 08, 09, 2010 team that won a couple of championships, lost to the Celtics in seven games another year. What are your thoughts and memories of those teams? Okay. So I was actually living in Budapest at this time. And uh, I had a blog, (laughs) I guess, uh, I don't know if they still call those things uh, that these days, but I had a blog and it was actually part of the ESPN network at that time. So I was really into European basketball. Well, Mm -hmm. Pal Gasol coming over there was like doubly awesome for a Lakers fan in Europe because I knew about FC Barcelona and him coming up in Spain, as well as, you know, all the stuff he had been doing in Memphis. And so for me, that was a bonus. And as soon as that happened, you knew, well, it, it was, it was, you know, it was team of destiny time. You know, it was, yeah. it was, it was inevitable. It became more inevitable. You know, we, we had only had one, really off year in there when Rudy Topjanovic came in and coached for a season. And I think Kobe went for like 35 something that year. I think that was his highest because, you know, it was just like, well, we have no system, much less the triangle. So Kobe's going to get the ball all the time. But yeah, that, that second run was fantastic. I mean, the fact that we faced the Celtics in the finals a couple of times was great. Twice. Yeah. it was sad that we didn't do it in 2009. That would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. But for me, this was really uh, stage two, I guess, because Kobe really only had two stages in his career, right? He's been a pro his whole, he had been a pro his whole life, basically, mm-hmm. his, whole, his whole adult life. And uh, so phase two really kicks in for me at the Olympics. And for me, this was like it. You know, again, the whole because, redeem team. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, again, like, okay, I'm a crazy man, but I'm going to make a confession right here. My favorite form of basketball is international basketball. 
really. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. More than college, more than pro, anything else. I love the Olympics. I love the, the World Cup. I love the Euro Cup, all that stuff. Okay. So, you know, 2004, you got all these studs. You got LeBron, you got Wade, you got uh, Allen Iverson is on that team. Tim Duncan's on that team. Okay. They lose three games, get the bronze. Okay. Net, two years later, they're in the, now what they call the World Cup. It's the FIBA World Championship. They go in, you know, LeBron, Bosch, Wade. This is when the collusion happened, basically. You know, you got a couple other, oh, Dwight Howard is on that team. A couple other studs on that team. Lose to Greece, you know, don't win the tournament. What they're lacking in those games, what they're lacking in those teams is a killer instinct. You know, they're, what, they're, what they were lacking is just that, that dagger, you know, the dagger thrower. And then Kobe comes in in 2008, and it was just bam, 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 undefeated, never a question in that final game. He completely takes over the team in the fourth quarter when it starts to get close, you know, with, with the best team the world could throw at them, Spain. You know, the, you know, they played some ball. You know, they had a team of, it was half NBAers and half EuroLeague players. You know, these are, these are great players on this. This is a great yeah. team, you know. But nope, nope. Kobe took over in that fourth quarter, uh, 20 points uh, in the game, that, that four-point play that's always, you know, done in replays of, of FIBA events. You know, that was, for me, that was, he shifted into out of the gear and he became a team leader. And bam, you know, we give him Paul Gasol. Uh, Derek Fisher is coming into his own. He has his team. You know, his absolutely, team. absolutely. So, yeah. Two more championships, uh, an Olympic gold medal in 2008 on that redeemed team. So thanks so much for joining us in this. Before we go, did you have a, another moment you mentioned or maybe a, just a single a closing thought? Just kind of sum up your feelings on Kobe Bryant and his career with the Lakers, his very long career with the Lakers. Yes. I would like to say one final thing because I was thinking about how to you know, express Kobe's place in in. in Laker history and NBA history and whatnot. And, th and that's this. If you're a fan of a sports team, okay, there's one stat that I think is most important to you. I mean, championships, yeah, that's important, okay? But here's the stat. Games played in that uniform. And the thing is, Kobe is a good, like, almost 30% ahead of the next guy who is, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who it could be said, had a good, what, one-third, one-half a career uh, with Milwaukee. You know, he even won a championship with Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee, true. winning a championship, you know. Okay, but Kobe is ahead of guys like, you know, Jerry West, James Worthy, Magic, Michael Cooper. Lakers Elgin Baylor, yeah. Right, exactly. Lakers for life, guys who won multiple championships with the team. And really, you know, I'm a magic guy. Uh, you could always talk about the supremacy of Jabbar. You could talk about how dominant Shaq was for two or three years. Okay. But Kobe cannot be forgotten. In, in, in a lot of ways, he's like the ultimate Laker in just that respect. I think that sums it up perfectly. Os, thank you so much for joining us check out truly the goats on the sports history network a lot of interesting and eclectic material there and if you check out his episode on the the boxing episode and the super fight with ali and marciano you'll be also privileged to hear me on a little bit yeah. of guest spot there with him so a little bit of an added bonus here but seriously check him out 
Oz, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we appreciate some uh, some Laker fan thoughts on Kobe. Well, thanks, and again, keep up the great work. Thank you so much. All right, why don't we move on to a uh, football player? All right, Chris Dolman, born 1961, died on January 28th. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Dolman played most of his career as a defensive end and linebacker with the Minnesota Vikings, leading the league with 21 sacks in 1989, the fourth highest single-season total in NFL history. Dolman retired with 150 and a half sacks, the seventh highest total in league history. So it's important to note that the stats did not become an official an official statistic till sometime in the early 80s. But Chris Dolman was sort of part of this first wave came into the league in the mid-1980s. This first wave of the defensive end as a major weapon in the pass rush game. He was kind of a contemporary and in some ways a forerunner to guys like Reggie White. And he played on a Viking team that was in a very interesting time period in the from sort of the mid 80s to the early 90s the team that was a frequent playoff presence but never quite good enough to get over the hump and oftentimes wouldn't even win a playoff game but they would get into the playoffs this was a team where it seemed like they almost had a different quarterback every year first it was Wade Wilson then it was Rich Gannon and they had Jim McMahon for a year and then Warren Moon so Dolman somebody who deserves to be a Hall of Famer not somebody who's super well-known and certainly not somebody who's on that upper echelon of great NFL players, but a hall of famer and a deserving one. He left the Vikings and he played a few different places after he left the Minnesota Vikings, but immediately after leaving the Vikings, he went to Atlanta and then later to San Francisco. And he joined the 49ers a couple of years after they won the Super Bowl with Steve Young, but he was a part of this larger push in the mid nineties by the 49ers to shore up their defense and not focus so much on offense. And that was when they brought in guys like Ken Norton and Dana Stubblefield and Deion Sanders for a year. Dolman was a part of that whole thing. And then obviously it's just when you see a football player who you remember playing growing up and somebody who died before the age of 60, it's just something that's unfortunately been happening way too much. He's a three-time first-team All-Pro in 87, 89, and 92. And in that same time, 90 and 93, he was a second-team All-Pro. So five out of seven years, first or second-team All-Pro. Defensive player of the year in 92. You mentioned that year in 89. First couple of years, he was a linebacker, and then he moved to defensive end. He was a 4-3 defensive end at a, you know, at a time. There was plenty of three fours. Famously, the Giants ran a three four, and then you know a lot of teams, including the Vikings, ran a four three. Obviously, he's known as a Hall of Famer, and like you mentioned, he was on some Viking teams that were good but not great, really. And you just kind of wonder, had he been on one of those teams that were more prominent in the the eighties or early nineties, if he was on. Dallas, if he was on San Francisco or the Giants or Washington or something like that, would he be more well-known and sort of more familiar? Would more people be familiar with him across the board? Or maybe even if he was on a terrible team, because it might be like, oh, all those years they were terrible. He was their lone bright spot instead of the best player on a pretty good but not spectacular team. Chris Dolman, great player, Hall of Famer, deserving of his position in the Hall of Fame and somebody who died way too young 
why don't we move on? We'll stay on the gridiron and we'll talk about Willie Wood, who was born in 1936 and passed away on February 3rd. Wood played for the Green Bay Packers from 1960 to 1971 as a safety, winning five NFL titles and the first two Super Bowls. Wood went undrafted in the 1960 NFL draft, but wrote a letter to head coach Vince Lombardi, who agreed to give him a tryout. Wood was named an All-Pro nine times and was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1989. He recorded the first interception in Super Bowl history, intercepting Len Dawson in the third quarter of Super Bowl I. As damaging as the McGee scores were, it was Willie Wood's third quarter interception that devastated the Chiefs. And it is intercepted on the left side. That's Willie Wood who picks it off. He may go. He was laying back waiting for that. After Wood brought the ball deep into Kansas City territory, the legendary Packer sweep took center stage. Kansas City 14. The Jim Taylor on a power sweep, cutting back at the 10. Taylor is in for the touchdown. There are a lot of Hall of Famers from the Lombardi Packer teams. I believe it's up to 12 at this point after Jerry Kramer was inducted a few years ago. And unfortunately, there are very few left alive, and four of them have passed away in the year 2020, Willie Wood being the first of four that we're going to talk about and the first of three on the defense. Five-time first-team All-Pro from 64 to 67, and then even 1969, so late in his career after Lombardi was already gone at 33 as a safety and becoming a first-team All-Pro was pretty impressive. That was actually a second-team All-Pro as late as 1970, so everything I just said but a year later. It's an era, too, where you think of defensive backs and defense, you know, you tend to think of, oh, defensive backs, that means stopping passing the passing game. But especially when you're talking about a safety, just how important a defensive back is to the running game. And when you, you know, you think of that era with the Packers and they're playing teams like Cleveland with Jim Brown. And it's very important that you have a safety out there who's able as the last line of defense to, you know, to stop those great running backs that you can tick off from that era. And, and Wood certainly was capable of that as evidenced by all of his all pro selections. He was a quarterback at USC in the late 1950s, but went undrafted. I'm sure that quite a bit, if not all of that was due to the prejudice and the stereotype against African-American quarterbacks at, during that time. But he ends up with the Packers where he's mentored by another African-American Hall of Fame defensive back by the name of Emlyn Tunnell. Emlyn Tunnell had been a star defensive back with the Giants in the 50s on their championship team in 56. And when Vince Lombardi left the Giants to take the Packers job, he convinced Emlyn Tunnell to, I guess, either come out of retirement or he convinced the Giants to trade him Emlyn Tunnell. But that was sort of the one giant player that Lombardi brought with him to the Packers and Tunnell plays a few years with the Packers and is a mentor to Willie Wood. Willie Wood, a team leader, never misses a game in 12 seasons. Ray Nitschke once said that he was more afraid of dirty looks from Willie Wood when he missed a tackle than he was of being chewed out on the sideline by Vince Lombardi and then the other thing I think that's worth mentioning is that the, as you can imagine, the late 1950s in Green Bay, Wisconsin was not exactly a very diverse place and not exactly a very friendly place to African-Americans. But Lombardi was a man who was very much without prejudice and worked to bring 
talented black players to the Packers. And that was especially evident on the defense where there are, and I'm not going to count Tanell here because he was only there for a couple of years, but I'm thinking one, two, I believe four hall of fame defensive players from black defensive players from those green Bay Packers, three of whom unfortunately passed away this year. And Willie Wood possibly, the best of them. The other thing I think is interesting to note is that he was a very multi-talented player. He returned kickoffs and punts, and he actually even, he even kicked extra points and field goals on rare occasions when that was necessary. So a great player, a very talented player, and a, surely a deserving Hall of Famer. And only one other thing that I would note is that he was a native of the Washington, D.C. area, and I on my drives to work occasionally the route that I take will take me right by Willie Wood way right by New York Avenue in Washington, DC. In fact, I just saw it today as I was driving into the office this morning. So great player groundbreaking and somebody who just deserves to be considered one of the greatest defensive backs of all time. Quick quote from Lombardi about him. And this is from the Packers uh, website right up the day after he passed. It says, pound for pound, Willie was the best tackler in the game, Lombardi once said. I think, and then his director, uh, Dave Hanner, who spent 44 years in the NFL as a player, coach, and scout, said, I think Willie Wood was as good a tackler as I've ever seen. So I talked about stopping the run, and that would certainly be an important factor in that. Absolutely. So let's move on from the Packers of the 60s to a gentleman who is most closely associated with the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 1950s. Sure. Roger Kahn, born in 1927, passed away on February 6th. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Kahn wrote about sports for seven decades. In 1972, he wrote The Boys of Summer, which tells the story of the lives and careers of the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 1950s. Often cited as one of the best sports books in history, The Boys of Summer is credited with creating the special place that the Brooklyn Dodgers hold in American popular culture. In later years, Kahn authored many additional books, including A Flame of Pure Fire, the definitive biography of Jack Dempsey, who we have talked about in previous episodes. We will not talk about in this episode, passed away just before the start of the new year. (laughs) Dempsey actually lived for quite some time. I think he lived to, we talked about this in the last episode, he lived to, I think, almost 90. Khan, and when Khan wrote his book about Dempsey, a lot of his writing was based on his friendship with Dempsey. I actually have not read The Boys of Summer cover to cover. I've read pieces of it, but I've read two other really good books that Khan has written. One, the Dempsey book that we previously mentioned, and another one called October Men, which is about the... 1978 Yankees and the the Bucky Dent year and the firing of Billy Martin and all that type of thing. Those of you who listen know that Andrew is a big, historically a big fan of the New York Giants baseball team who were the great rivals of the Dodgers. And I, I think that it's safe to say that the Dodgers maybe have been a little bit over romanticized in history at the expense of the Giants. And, but Nonetheless, the Brooklyn Dodgers hold this special place not only in baseball history, but sort of in American history and Americana and sort of the the loss of the Dodgers is associated with sort of the loss of innocence and the loss of a certain way of life. 
maybe even the end of a certain type of era in New York City. And a lot of that myth-making started with Roger Kahn's book. Yeah, and I don't necessarily blame the guy who wrote the definitive book. You know, he did this and you said, what, it came out in 72? Yes. Boys uh, of Summer. So only 15 years after the Dodgers had left. And it's certainly a, a very important story and does deserve to some romanticism. You know, even beyond, obviously, the Jackie Robinson thing. Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier is its own whole important part of American history. And that those Dodger teams, they were very good. They won a ton of pennants and ran up against the greatest dynasty of all time. And that's probably the only reason they didn't win six or seven world championships. So I, I, I've never really had an issue with sort of the original stories because it does need to be told. My, my only issue is that sometimes I feel like it comes at the, ex- I feel like the 10th or 12th retelling of a story of the Dodgers comes at the expense of other stories and I think things that were probably true for most teams back then get told as if they were unique to the Dodgers like oh most of the players lived in the area and it's like well I think maybe not the Yankees you know but in general I have a feeling most of the Cubs players lived near Chicago and most of the Tigers players probably lived near where Tiger Stadium was you know what I mean so again it's not that I don't think it's interesting or that it's somehow wrong i've just always thought it maybe it's a little bit overrepresented i don't mean the robinson thing i just mean some of the other stuff but you know anyone who can sort of write a book that spins off its entire own cottage genre for 50 years i mean point did, did a very good job the dodgers have a lot of things that i think sort of worked in their favor first of all they were up, up until the nets about 10 years ago they're the only team only team in the 20th century really ever to call brooklyn home and brooklyn has always sort of had its own identity separate and apart from new york city so i think that's part of it i think the role that they played in integrating the game not just with robinson but with campanella with junior gilliam don newcomb down the line i think that plays a role I also think that the fact that they were good right before they left, you know, the Boston Braves and the St. Louis Browns and the Philadelphia Athletics, they stunk before they left. And even the Giants were not great before they left. They won a championship, but then the next couple of years, they were not very good. I think the fact that they were so good before they left also plays such a role. And then I want to read a passage from Boys of Summer to sort of take us away from Roger Kahn. But I think the other thing that's interesting about Roger Kahn is he comes from this generation of writers, most of whom, but not all of whom are in, were were in New York. guys like Jimmy Breslin who sort of went back and forth between sports, hard news, culture, fiction. They sort of wrote about a little bit of everything. And so Khan, in addition to his baseball books, he's written novels. He wrote obviously the book about, Dempsey, he wrote a book about student rebellion and student protest in the 1970s. He was Jewish, so he wrote several books about the Jewish American experience. And then his memoir described his friendship with four men. That was Robert Frost, the poet, Eugene McCarthy, the senator and one-time presidential candidate, and then Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese. So sort of a bygone era when these journalists either started as sports writers or they dabbled in sports writing as part of a larger 
career. Let me read to you from Boys of Summer before we move on. Just a paragraph here. This is Khan. My years with the Dodgers were 1952 and 1953, two seasons in which they lost to the World Series to the Yankees. You may glory in a team triumphant, but you fall in love with a team in defeat. Losing after great striving is the story of man who was born to sorrow, whose sweetest songs tell of saddest thought, and who, if he is a hero, does nothing in life as becomingly as leaving it. A whole country was stirred by the high deeds and thwarted longings of the Duke, Preacher, Pee-wee, Scrooge, and the rest. The team was awesomely good and yet defeated. Their skills lifted every man's spirit, and their defeat joined them with every man's existence. A national team with a country in thrall, irresistible, and unable to beat the Yankees. So that's just a little bit of Roger Kahn there. I've got Let's a little m- affinity for some teams who've won. <laughs> but anyway, we can move on. There you go. That's a good point. Well, although I do have to say, though, sometimes I feel that with the Knicks. Like, the fact that the Knicks have never won in some ways, it'll be, you know, they just, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to explain. But you, you, you do sometimes have a feeling. It's like Red Sox fans all those years. You have a certain feeling for your team until they win. Let's move on for the first time to the ice hockey rink. Henry Richard was born in 1936 and passed away on March 6th. The younger brother of all-time great Maurice the Rocket Richard, Henry the Pocket Rocket Richard, played 20 years with the Canadians and won 11 Stanley Cups, tying him with Bill Russell for the most in North American professional sports. Richard scored the Stanley Cup clinching goal in Game 6 of the 1966 Finals against the Detroit Red Wings and the game tying and game-winning goals in Game 7 of the 1971 Stanley Cup Finals against Chicago. Richard was named one of the greatest 100 players in NHL history in 2017, the league's 100th anniversary. So they were, you know, he's the younger brother of one of the most famous hockey players of all time, considered one of the greatest hockey players of all time. So he's obviously, it's tough to think about him in any other context but that. They were different style players, but I, I think, the the most sort of light I can lend to this because I'm not going to pretend to have in, intricate knowledge of the younger Richard brothers. Uh, by the way, I'm not. Are we sure it's Henry or is it Henri? You know, I've heard it pronounced both ways. To be honest with you, that Montreal Canadiens dynasty, which is really the the only thing comparable to that, is the Yankees dynasty in North American sports in terms of how long it lasted. But it's such a special thing because it's a team in this unique little enclave. It's a Canadian team, but it's in French Canada. So it's not really French. It's not Canadian. It's its own little thing. For a long time, every player on the team was French Canadian. Most of them were from that immediate area. And while certain guys are legends throughout, you know, hockey history, they're gods in the Quebec area, especially if you were part of that long running championship dynasty. And like you said, he was a 11, a key player in 11 championship teams. Between from 1942 until 1975, that's 33 years. One or both of the Richard brothers were on the Montreal Canadiens. They were 15 years apart. They were teammates for four or five years. They were 15 years apart in age. So it's not as if they were 
contemporaries for very long. And he managed to play long enough and have enough big moments to where he sort of was able, at least during his playing days, if not historically, get out of the shadow of his older brother. So, yes, somebody who definitely is not as good as his brother, is not as legendary as his brother, but still managed to have a lot of big moments and play on a lot of good teams and win 11 Stanley Cups as a member of his hometown team. And you don't see guys doing it in their hometown all that often. And so, like you said, I think that is probably one of the most impressive things about both Richard brothers is that they were such stars and meant so much in their hometowns. Yeah. They, they can thank the territorial uh, yes. system back then for that, but that's, you know, that just adds to it. If you're, you know, if you're from French Canada during that era, I was going to say, if you were a hockey fan, I think if you grew up in French Canada in that era, you were a hockey fan. I don't think there was an if about it. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we move on to uh, another football player? Sure. Del Schaffner, born in 1934, passed away on March 11th. Schaffner played wide receiver in the NFL for 11 seasons, splitting his time between the Los Angeles Rams and the New York Giants. He was named to five All-Pro teams and five Pro Bowls and led the league in receiving in 1958. Schaffner played in three straight NFL championship games with the Giants from 1961 to 1963. So the Giants of the 50s, they won in 56 and then they lost the NFL title game in 58 and 59 in 61 in 62 and 63 early on. I think they were more of a running team with Frank Gifford, Alex Webster, Charlie Connerly was the quarterback. And the strength of that team was definitely the defense. They had hall of famers, Sam Huff. We talked about Emlyn Tunnell. They had uh, Andy Robustelli. So the defense was sort of the, the linchpin of those giant teams in at least the 1950s by the early sixties, they had brought in Y.A. Tittle from San Francisco to be the quarterback and Tittle who would eventually himself go into the hall of fame. He was a thrower. He was a, a guy with a strong arm who could throw the ball downfield. And one of the first things he did was to recommend that they bring Del Schaffner in from the Rams. Schaffner had been an all pro with the Rams. And so the early 60s, probably until the days of Odell Beckham, are probably considered the greatest passing attack in the history of the Giants. You could certainly, you know, from a career standpoint, you could talk about Amani Toomer and Plexico Burris, although he wasn't there for very, you know, he was only there about four years, was a superstar receiver they brought in and performed as such. But Del Schaffner certainly for a very, very long time was the best run, uh, wide receiver in Giants history. Maybe he could still have the claim, although personally I'd go with Toomer. But, you know, you think about the Giants just historically and then in that late 50s, early 60s, you're thinking black and white Yankee Stadium. You'd imagine they ran an offense where they ran the ball 60 times a game. And then you look at Schaffner's numbers in, you know, just 61 to 63 specifically, not to discount his years with the Rams, but to just talk about his first three years with the Giants. 68 receptions for 1,125 yards and 11 touchdowns. 53 receptions for 1,133 yards and 12 touchdowns and then 64 receptions for 1,181 yards and nine touchdowns. So the touchdown numbers are eye-popping. And then the catch numbers, and these are in 
seasons of 14 games and in one season he only played 13. So like this, these are phenomenal numbers going over a thousand yards, especially then with over 10 touchdowns on average, those three years. Two things to note about him. First of all, he was a chain smoker, which you had more guys who were smokers in those days, but to be a wide receiver, that's such a position that's so heavily dependent on cardiovascular strength to have a guy be a chain smoker is very unique. And then he is only one of only three wide receivers who has been a five time first team, all pro selection. And the other two are Jerry Rice and Terrell Owens. So Del Schaffner is somebody who's definitely in good company in the pantheon of wide receivers. There's a clip on the history of the Giants DVD that I have, and it's a, it's a clip of a guy at like a banquet talking, probably in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, somewhere in there. And he's saying, you know, people back then used to talk about the Giants as having a, a, a great defensive team. But I remember, you know, they were also had a very, very strong offensive team. After all, I lived in New York at the time, and I remember Y.A. Tittle throwing passes to Del Schaffner. And the reason to me that's always been interesting is the guy who's saying that is Richard Nixon. <laughs> this is, like I said, it's after his presidency ended and he's at some banquet or fundraiser. And I don't know why he's talking about that, <laughs> to be honest, but it's just an interesting thing to hear like a city or an ex president of the United States talking about probably at some important state occasion. I, I doubt, <laughs> I doubt that was what they hired him to make a speech about. <laughs> they get to talk about Dell Schaffner tonight, but just to hear him, you know, talk about that shows. Yeah. This is a, something that's stuck in a guy who's had plenty going on's mind 20 years later was how good an offensive team that was. I think that was Eisenhower's wake that that was, that he was speaking at actually. Seriously? No, of course oh. not. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Absolutely. I just would want to point out to the audience that when we recorded this quote unquote, recorded this for the first time, I guessed what he was talking about. I was familiar with that clip. I didn't jump in this time because it would have seemed fake, but I, I did so the first time. So you I would just have been have... pissed if you jumped in this time, to be honest. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Our next in memoriam figure is going to be Jimmy Wynn, who was born in 1942 and passed away on March 12th. Known as a toy cannon due to his small stature, Wynn played 15 years in the major leagues, primarily with the Houston Astros. A three-time All-Star, Wynn failed to make it to the postseason with Houston, making his first appearance in the playoffs with the Dodgers in 1974. Wins number 24 was retired by the Astros in 2005. And I am joined, honored to be joined, by Warren Rogan, who is the host of Sports Forgotten Heroes, a show which recently joined the Sports History Network, but which I have been a fan of for the last couple of years. Sports Forgotten Heroes is about the stars who have faded away with time. Guys like Earl Morrill, Gil McDougald, Dolph Shays. Those are a few of my favorites that I've listened to, at least. Warren, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, why don't you just, uh, before we get into Jimmy Wynn, why don't you just uh, talk about your podcast for a second? Sure. Um, Sports Forgotten Heroes, I launched it back uh, April 2017. I released a new episode every other Tuesday, uh, finishing up my, uh, what, fourth year or going into my fourth year. It's been, it's been a journey. I've been able to speak to a lot of great writers and researchers, authors every once in a while. I get a pretty cool athlete on themselves. Uh, most of the guys I do talk about have passed away 
many years ago, but every once in a while I find someone who is still around and love to talk to them. Guys like Frank Ryan, who was the last quarterback to lead the Cleveland Browns to an NFL championship. I just recently spoke with Vic Hadfield, who was a captain of the New York Rangers. I've had Dennis Marook on. I had Red Kelly on, a great hockey player for the Red Wings and the Maple Leafs just before he passed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Skip Lockwood, who was a pitcher for the New York Mets. Uh, Denny McLean, the last pitcher to win 30 games in a baseball season. So every once in a while I get, a, get an athlete on. But for the most part, I talk about guys from yesteryear whom time has forgotten. Someone once told me, if I'm interested in the topic, then there's somebody else interested in the topic. Go for it. Do the podcast. And it's been pretty good so far. Absolutely. And I think um, you kind of, along with a few other podcasts that I've listened to, sort of the long-form sports history podcasts that have come out through the last few years was sort of what renewed my interest and Andrew's interest as well, as well in trying to do something like this. And we just got started, as you all know, we just got started back in October. But it, like I said, it really is an honor to have you on the show Let's talk uh, a little bit about Jimmy Wynn. And as the um, those of you who've been listening to this episode know, Andrew and I have been going through a, a bunch of folks. And we've, as we hit March, we've already done David Stern, Don Larson, Kobe Bryant. Jimmy Wynn was actually somebody who was not on my list. And I, when I looked at his stats, I was a little bit embarrassed to, to say that. A guy who hit 37 home runs one year, 33 home runs another year as for a very small in stature. So Warren, why don't you did an episode on Jimmy when earlier this year, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you learned about him? Hey, he was a uh, terrific ball player. He was known as a toy cannon. He could hit the ball a long way. Had he not played in the Houston Astrodome, my gosh, he would have hit a lot more home runs. He was just this compact muscular dude who was a terrific ball player. Interestingly enough, he grew up in the Cincinnati area and he dreamed of playing for the Cincinnati Reds. He was drafted, signed by the Reds, but never never got to play with them. And he was taken by what was then known as the Houston Colt 45s when the Astros first came into baseball. They were known as the Colt 45s. So he was taken in the uh, expansion draft by the Colt 45s. And a year later, he made his debut with the team. He hit 244 with four home runs and 27 ribbies in 70 games. Um, But he made a pretty good impression on the team. And he found his way back to the Astros in 64 and really made an impression on the team and stuck with them. And in his first full year, which was 1965, he had 22 homers and 73 ribbies. And from there, he became a fixture in that lineup. I mean, this lineup of the Astros was built around him. He was a pretty powerful hitter. But he played on some teams that were, I think for, to put it mildly, not very good. Yeah, no, they weren't good. In fact, in 1967, you referenced this, he hit 37 home runs as a team. The Astros 
hit just 93. So Wynn hit 37 of those 93 home runs. I mean, it's, they did not have, they did not have good lineups and really um, when they finally started to get better and start to put a team together, he had, he had some falling out with the managers of the teams at that time. And um, they jettisoned him. They, they traded him to the Dodgers. So here's a guy who was the lineup. He was the whole lineup for the Astros. He was all the power they had. And um, they sent him packing to, uh, to the Dodgers. He'd never been in the playoffs, never been in the series. And um, his first year with the Dodgers was 74. And they made the series and they played the Oakland A's. And that year, Jimmy hit 32 home runs and had a career-best 108 RBIs for the Dodgers, and he was an all-star. And uh, he only lasted one more year with the Dodgers. He started to fade away. He was 33 his second year with the Dodgers, and he ended up playing a little bit with the Braves, a little bit with the Yankees, a little bit with the uh, Brewers. But the guy had a great career, Dan. I mean, he had 291 home runs. His overall batting average was 250. He'd strike out a lot. He was a feast or famine hitter, but he also knocked in 964. He was a decent outfielder. He was a good ball player. And it's funny, too. I see parallels with sort of another diminutive Houston Astro in in Altuve, in Jose Altuve in the modern era. I would imagine that you probably heard a lot more talk about Jimmy Wynn over the last few years when the Astros developed yet another small power hitter in the, on their team. Yeah, you know, Altuve is, is, is remarkable. I mean, he, he's, like you said, he's a small, compact guy. I have no idea where that power comes from. Wynn was actually a much more, I don't know how you could say, but a much more physically imposing presence when he got up to – to the plate. I mean, he was five foot ten, and you know, like I said, he could hit the ball a ton. You know, the the interesting thing about Jimmy Wynn was he had a falling out with the team as well. Like I said, he and the manager didn't get along, and the manager right now just uh, slips my mind. Was but that Harry Walker? It was Harry Walker, and when Jimmy went to the Dodgers, I believe Harry's brother was a coach with the Dodgers and he said don't worry about what Harry said you just come here do your job and that's what he did but he had this falling out with the Astros and it took quite some time but they patched things up and Jimmy would show up and do some coaching for the Astros and ultimately had his number retired yeah, 20 years or so after he left the team, which I thought was kind of strange. No, actually, I'm sorry, 30 years, 2005 to the mid-70s. That's 30 years. You don't often see – it happens sometimes, but you don't often see that long between a retiring of a player or leaving the team and then a retiring of a number. Absolutely. You know, and you, you brought up another good parallel in Altuve because that's another thing that I'm not sure a lot of people realize about Jimmy Wynn. The guy was fast. I mean, yeah. he once his, – his first full year – like I said, was 65, he stole 43 bases. For his career, he had 225 stolen bases. He ended up, I think it was with an ankle injury, and that hurt his ability to steal. But, geez, I'm looking at his stats right now. 
43, 13, 16, 11, 23, 24. I mean, the guy could steal bases. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Warren Rogan from Sports Forgotten Heroes on the Sports History Network. And Warren will pop up a couple more times as the episodes go on. So thank you, Warren. You got it. Anytime, Dan. All right. Why don't we move on to uh, a very unique figure? And let's talk a little bit about Curly Neal, who was born in 1942 and passed away on March 26th. Neal played college basketball at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, averaging 23.1 points a game for his collegiate career. Undrafted by the NBA, Neal instead joined the Harlem Globetrotters, playing with the team from 1963 until 1985 and staying with the club as an ambassador after his playing days were over. Neal became known for his dribbling skills, a key part of the Globetrotters routine, and was just the fifth Globetrotter to have his number retired by the team. Yeah, he's probably the second most famous Globetrotter, I would say, to Meadowlark Lemon. Certainly the history of the Globetrotters is very interesting because of sort of the, the racial aspect to it, but also just the different eras of it. And it's not something that if you tried to explain to people would make a lot of sense. Like you would think it was something that hasn't happened since the twenties, you know, but then it's like, it's this basketball team, but it's also a show for kids and they're playing guys who are trying to beat them, but it's not very good. You know, it, but um, you know, he's certainly one of the names that, is associated with the Globetrotters for forever. And there was a period of which he was one of the key players on the team where the Globetrotters were very culturally pervasive. They were in cartoons. They were in Scooby-Doo. They were on a, uh, at least one Gilligan's Island episode. So again, it's tough to boil anything down to statistics. I don't know if they keep statistics for the Globetrotters. They probably do at least these days, but um, you know, one of sort of the, most iconic faces in this very unique cultural institution. There's an idea out there that all the Globetrotters ever did was clown around. And maybe they've, I have to admit, I've not followed them very closely in recent years, but maybe it's like that today, but they, they could also, they had good players and could play a good game of basketball when that was what the evening called for when Neil died, I was reading through his obituary and one of the people they quoted was Isaiah Thomas. And that's the, the hall of famer, Isaiah Thomas, not the current Isaiah Thomas talking about what an influence Curly Neal was on him with the dribbling. I also think that this is a time period and there's a, they don't talk about the, the Globetrotters in this book, but there's a book by a gentleman by the name of Pete Axthelm, which is called the city game. And it's basically half about the Knicks of the 1970 season and then half about street ball players in New York City in the 1960s. And the Globetrotters are sort of a part of that. There's this whole basketball culture in New York in the 60s and 70s with the Knicks being at their best ever, with the street ball games with the Rucker tournament and then with the Globetrotters. And then, you know, maybe a few years later, you get St. John's and some of the big college basketball, but sort of speaks in general to what a big deal basketball at every level was in New York for about a 25 to 30 year time frame in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
says this was the ESPN article from when he passed, and it said he played in more than 6,000 games in 97 countries for the Barnstorming Globetrotters from 1963 to 1985 when the team appeared in numerous televised specials, talk shows, television shows, and even cartoons. And then just some of the people who, who said things after he passed. Isaiah Thomas talked about Curly Neal and Marcus Haynes taught me how to dribble. Steve Kerr mentioned hard to express how much joy Curly Neal brought to my life growing up, RIP to a legend. And, you know, what, what it almost reminds me of a little bit, like you mentioned with Isaiah Thomas, is like when you'll hear like Muhammad Ali very famously talking about learning certain things about presentation from the wrestler Gorgeous George, you know, studying tapes of him growing up. Some of that hearing Isaiah Thomas say I learned how to dribble from him kind of reminds me of that where it's, it's, it wouldn't seem like a direct comparison, but then when you hear somebody say, oh, yeah, I learned a lot from this guy, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I think just also being an, an, sort of an ambassador for something like that for over 20 years is you're going to forever be associated even 40 years later with if you asked somebody to name a Harlem Globetrotter, he would probably be one of the few that people would get to right away. Absolutely. All right, why don't we move on to somebody very different, sort of somebody else like Don Larson, who is best known for a single moment. Sure. Tom Dempsey, born in 1947, passed away on April 4th. Born with a birth defect that left him with no toes on his right foot and no fingers on his right hand, Dempsey nonetheless had a 10-year career as a place kicker with several teams in the NFL. Wearing a special square-shaped shoe, Dempsey kicked a record, game-winning 63-yard field goal for the New Orleans Saints against the Detroit Lions in 1970. The record remained until 2013 when it was broken by Matt Prater. So, obviously, the fact that he was able to overcome this handicap is something that's very impressive. And the shoe that he kicked with is something that's in the Hall of Fame. You can see it if you go to Canton. They don't let you wear it, I asked. (laughs) And the other thing that's interesting about him is that the NFL ended up making some rules changes associated with him after he kicked that field goal as far as what type of shoe could and could not be worn on the playing field by a kicker. The other thing that's interesting to note is that this was a 63-yard field goal at the time when the goal line was on the – I'm sorry, that the – Goal post was on the goal line. If you see pictures or video of the ice bowl or of the Johnny Unitas 1958 greatest game ever played, the goal post is right on the goal line. And now that obviously presented some, some safety issues because you had the goal post right in the field of play. But that means that this was a kick that was made from his own 37 yard line, which is just crazy to think about. And when you watch the video of it, it, the way they and this was the camera angle at the time, it looks like they're tracking a punt. The camera <laughs> just sort of tracks the arc of this kick for sixty some odd yards, and it's so different. And it was so unexpected at the time. It was a game winning field goal because obviously you'd be crazy to kick a field goal like that in any other circumstance. But players on Detroit were laughing. They thought it was so absurd that they lined up to kick this field goal. 
Yeah, I kind of wonder, and I, this wouldn't be something to easily figure it out, but like, I wonder what the longest misses around there were. He made a 63-yard field goal, but I don't think I don't think there was a lot of guys kicking 61-yarders and missing them around that time either. I don't think it was something where it was like, oh, we're getting close to somebody hitting one of these. No, uh, that's, a good, that's a good point, too. They probably wouldn't have been laughing if, yeah. if it had been close. So the Tom Dempsey rule, by the way, says, any said, any shoe that is worn by a player with an artificial limb on his kicking leg must have a kicking surface that conforms to that of a normal kicking shoe, which is not something that probably came up all that often. <laughs> Professional NFL kickers with artificial legs or artificial feet. You know, the thing with Dempsey that to me is so interesting, and, and obviously the, there's been people saying, well, the fact that he was able to to use his disability as, a, as an advantage, I, I understand that. The fact is that, like, and when we talked about kicking back then, they were kicking the ball wrong back then, and he was still able to hit a 63-yard field goal that wasn't surpassed until 2013. I think it was tied once in the late 90s, early 2000s by Jason Elam, and maybe mm-hmm. more before it was broken. And it's only been broken by a yard. And it came at a time where every kicker kicked the ball straight away. You lined up right behind the holder and you went up and you kicked it with the front of your foot. We've all seen the old clips and then guys started kicking soccer style. And now everybody kicks soccer style because that's the way you should, it turns out that that's actually the way you should kick a football. So the fact that a guy kicked and made a 63 yard field goal, which is almost still the record using a method that, was the wrong method, even though they didn't know it at the time, is still pretty remarkable to me, you know, dis, dis, disability or no disability. All right, we're talking about Tom Dempsey, and I am honored to be joined by another one of my colleagues on the Sports History Network. And Jeremy McFarlane is the host of Football is Family on the Sports History Network, a podcast that shares the story of football fans and the teams that have touched their lives. Jeremy, thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, Why don't you, before we talk about a very unique figure in Tom Dempsey, why don't you tell us a little bit about your show on the Sports History Network? Well, the thing I want to do with this show is to allow the fans to tell us why they really like the team that they like. I mean, there's got to be a story behind it. And and I'll tell you, the background behind it comes from uh, Clay Travis's book, Dixieland Delight. And in the very first chapter, he mentions that you like the team because your grandfather liked the team or your parents liked the team and you grew up watching it. Well, I didn't have a team in Tennessee until the Titans came here. So I am my own grandparents, I guess. <laughs> but it's something like that, that you grew up watching the team. Why do you like the team that you do? And tell me why. And I want to know. It's, it's, it's a personal thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I'm a little bit not necessarily different, but sort of the same type of thing as you, my dad grew up in Philly, so he was an Eagles fan, and my I'm mother sorry. grew up. My mother grew up in New York, <laughs> but yeah, now tell me about it. My mother grew up in New York, but she was not really a football fan. And my grandfather on my mother's side was much more of a baseball fan. He was a a New York Giants baseball fan, then later became a Met fan. And early on. In my life, I was much more of a hoops fan and a baseball fan, so Yankees and Knicks. And then I think I kind of more got into the Giants because of some of the friends I had in, growing up in the neighborhood. And 
they were Giants fans. Their dads were big Giant fans. And I sort of firmly believe, and this is a discussion that my wife and I have sometimes because she's from Boston. I'm from New York and we oh. live in DC. Yeah. Oh. And if we, um, if we have kids, we've talked about, you know, do you want your kids to be, you know, New York fan, Boston fans, whatever. And really, I've always think that usually you kind of have to be a fan of the area that you're growing up in and living in. So that that's my personal take on it. If, if you have a team, at least, if well, you, obviously, it, if you're in an area like without any, you, you probably grew up at the same time that I did with, uh, with the giants in the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. I'm trying to look in the back, uh, that picture that you have on the wall there, is that a baseball field? Yeah, that's Yankee Stadium. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's hard to say what well, you're going to like this team or you're going to like that team. It's, it's, it, you want the kids to decide for themselves. But, you know, having a little nudge toward a specific team that doesn't cheat to win Super Bowls might be a good thing. <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, because um, my wife and I uh, – and we'll get into Tom Dempsey here in a minute. My wife and I – or not just my wife, but I also, I went to school in Boston and a lot of our friends down here are from Boston. And they always talk about, are oh, you a giant fan? You must hate the Patriots. And I always say, as a giant fan, I have less reason to hate the Patriots than any other fan base, probably in the whole country. Cause we beat them twice. But yeah. So. It's like, you know, as people said that they feared Paul Bryant, you know, the bear, because he would beat them. Well, if you're beating the team, you have nothing to fear. You beat them <laughs> twice. Exactly. Exactly. There's nothing, to fear. There's nothing to worry about with them. That being said, I do own a Tom Brady jersey. It is flated up. It's good. <laughs> I actually do have one and I wear it proudly. There you go. <laughs> so check out Football is Family by Jeremy on the Sports History Network. Definitely a unique look at the sports history and the NFL history that we all love. So we are talking about Tom Dempsey. And one of the things that Andrew and I talked about when we were discussing Dempsey is how he probably more than any other figure or maybe, maybe Don Larson or maybe one or other two that we're going to talk about that died in 2020. He's really known for one specific moment. So what is it about Tom Dempsey that you find so unique? Well, uh, when I was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year in college, my dad, who is not a football fan, took me to Canton, Ohio. I always wanted to go there. And we walked through the fields, we walked through the field, uh, the, the, the building, and I saw a box that looks like, it looked like a box, but it was mm -hmm. a shoe. And I, I'm showing my fingers like this and you can't tell it, but you know, that's fun. And I was like, what is that? And, and growing up in the nineties, we didn't have the internet then. I watched NFL, NFL uh, films, but I didn't know what it was. So I started looking in it, and that was Tom Dempsey's shoe. The, the man was born without toes on his right foot and without fingers, really. I believe that that's what they said. And I looked at that, and I thought, this man, why is that shoe in the Hall of Fame? Well, he, he kicked on uh, November the 8th, 1970 at Tulane Stadium, a 63-yard field goal, which at the time was the longest in NFL history. And I watched the video today to see it. He kicked it from his own 37-yard line. That was before 1970. The, NFL, the uh, field goal uh, was up on the 
uh, goal line. It wasn't the back like it is now. Yep. So he kicked it on the opposite end of the field. And the people there who, who were watching it said it sounded like a gunshot went off. He kicked it so hard. And I, I was thinking, number one, the man had, and the word deformity is not the case. He had a, he had a foot that wasn't formed correctly, but he didn't let it stop him. The man played 11 years in the league. He didn't let that stop him. And I have the utmost respect for people like that. And just sort of two things to note. First of all, the players on the opposite team were literally laughing when they, they lined laughing. up to kick this field goal. And I think at some point down the line, the NFL made some sort of a rules change. I got it right here. I want to read it for you. Please. Rule five. I'm getting older and my glasses are not working. There we go. Rule five, section four, article three, item seven. Kicking shoes must not be modified. Now, I said he was, it was in the shape of a box, basically. Um, it said that the kicking shoes must not be modified. And any shoe that is worn by a player with an artificial limb on his kicking leg must have the kicking surface that conforms to that of a normal kicking shoe. Now, Article 5, Section 4, art, uh, excuse me, Rule 5, Section 4, Article 4, uh, other prohibited equipment, a detachable kicking toe. So you couldn't get, if you had a part of a foot, you couldn't buy a shoe and then put a detachable toe in it. That's again the rules. Wow. I didn't know that. I, I, I did not know that piece of it either. I knew they made changes to the rules, but I didn't know it was that, that specific, I guess you could say. Yeah, and so he was a guy, he, like you said, he played for many, many years, but he kind of had that one shining moment. I don't think he was ever, ever a pro bowler. I don't think he um, certainly – I have it written down here that he actually was a pro bowler one year. Okay. I'm going to say that he was, but uh, let me just say this, that I tried this in Madden once. <laughs> My friend and I created a uh, created a player. His name was Kickbutt. He was about five five and weighed about three hundred pounds. He was a big boy, and we tried to kick a sixty three yarder with wind at our back. We couldn't do it. <laughs> this is a guy who did it in Tulane Stadium, outside. Outside, and uh, if you've ever been to Nolens, you know that that is a humid place very little win and he still did it now you could say that he was uh yes he had one pro bowl and an all pro honors as he led the league in 1969 with 41 field goal attempts oh so oh, this was the even the year before that field goal yes so and, and by the way he is 6'2 255 pounds and this guy said that he loved hitting people now how many kickers today go ole as the guy runs right by him <laughs> And yep. he, this is not the guy, but to look at this, that this man and the way he, he passed is, is awful. COVID got him. Mm -hmm. um, he was going down with Alzheimer's. If anybody has ever watched a loved one go down with Alzheimer's, it is not fun at all, but a man who made his mark in the league. And uh, in fact, Tom, uh, uh, the owner, Tom Benson of the, uh, of the saints loved him and gave him uh, a job working in one of his car 
uh, dealerships. That tells wow. you what type of man uh, Tom Dempsey was. Absolutely. And somebody who certainly had one shining moment, but uh, also deserves to be remembered for more than just that one moment. So Jeremy McFarlane of Football is Family on the Sports History Network. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking a few minutes to talk about Tom Dempsey. Hey, come on and join our show soon, please. Will do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. In the nation's capital, Redskins owner George Preston Marshall would make segregation's last stand. He used to call me to go to Kiwanis Club or Lions Club or something at noon. Somebody would all, every damn time I ever went, someone would ask this same question. Mr. Marshall, when are we going to have some black football players here? He had, had the same answer to all of them. He said, we're going to start playing black players when the Harlem Globetrotters start playing white players. By 1962, it had become a political event, and Congress pressured Marshall to integrate. But only after consecutive seasons in which the Redskins won only one game did Marshall trade for Bobby Mitchell, and he showed him some century-old Southern hospitality. We, we break camp, we come into Washington and have the welcome home luncheon. I'm standing there, and everybody stands up. And the shock for me was they started singing uh, uh, Dixie. And I'm standing there and I'm looking around and everybody just singing their hearts out. And George Preston Marshall was on the next podium down from me. And he turned around, he looked up at me and he said, Bobby Mitchell, sing! This is loud. And I just started to mouth. <laughs> I didn't even know the words. Mitchell rose above the insults. And his Hall of Fame talent and grace helped restore the Redskins to respectability. Let's move on and talk about Bobby Mitchell, who was born in 1935 and died on April 5th. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Mitchell became one of the first African-American players in Washington Redskins history in 1962. Splitting his time between running back and wide receiver, Mitchell also excelled as a kickoff and punt returner. Elected to the Hall of Fame in 1983, Mitchell's number was retired by the franchise in 2020, one of only two players to be so honored. Yeah, and I think with Mitchell that, you know, the, the retirement from Washington probably has something to do with sort of the very mixed history of the franchise from a, a racial standpoint, because you've, you've seen teams get away from retiring numbers, and certainly if they've only ever retired two, then that's a pretty good indication. But that said, he's definitely deserving, was a three-time first-team All-Pro, three straight years from 62 to 64, receptions leader in 62, receiving yards leader in 62 and 63. So sort of in that same era we were talking about Del Schaffner with the Giants, Mitchell was putting up numbers that were better in most respects, you know, compared to him and led the league in a lot of these uh, instances. And a guy who stayed involved with the Redskins franchise for many, many years after the end of his career from a pure football standpoint, he's kind of got a little bit of an unlucky streak to him and that he comes up with the Cleveland Browns in 1958, which is only a couple years after they had won the last NFL title of their dynasty of the forties and fifties. And then in just the year before he joined the team, he, they had lost in the had been in the NFL title game 
and had lost it to Detroit. He spends a number of years, four years with Cleveland and then gets traded to Washington and plays on the Washington Redskins for six or seven years, 62 to 68 leads the league in receiving a couple times. And then the year after he leaves is when Vince Lombardi takes the team over. Now Lombardi, because of his own premature death ends up only being with the team for one year, but he kind of misses out sort of like Gail Sayers, who we'll talk about later, never plays in a playoff game. He sort of misses out on some good things in his career, kind of on, on both the back and the front end from a football point of view. When he retired, he was second in total net yards in NFL history. You know, when he retired in, what was it, 1969 was his last year, 68? 68 was his last year. It was his last year, yeah. So he was second when he retired there. He was selected as a Pro Bowl to the Pro Bowl four times, once as a running back and three times as a receiver. So just making the Pro Bowl at two distinct positions like that is pretty interesting. It's not like it's, you know, wasn't like they're saying, oh, inside linebacker and outside linebacker. They're totally different positions. And he made the Pro Bowl, you know, at two different positions. And he also was somebody who was the, the other sort of analog or analogous player that I think of is Frank Gifford, who was a running back and then came back later as a receiver. But I'd have to look at Gifford numbers. I don't think Gifford ever put up numbers like 1384 and 1436 for yardage in a 14-game season. So, yeah, he started off as a running back. But not only was did he become a receiver, but maybe at the time one of the best receivers in the league. So not just a guy who did it for a couple of years. And then like Sayers and some of these other guys – was also a really, really good kickoff and punt returner as well. Gifford had a 1,400. You, that was total yards, right, that you were talking about with Mitchell? No, receiving yards. Receiving yards, okay, yeah. The most receiving yards that Gifford ever had in a year was 768 in 1959. Or, excuse me, 796 in 1962. So, Broke, you know, got to 1,400 all-purpose one year, but not just receiving. And Gifford, obviously, a much better running back than Bobby Mitchell was. I'm not trying to short-sell Frank Gifford, but I'm just saying to move from being an all-star at one position to then being a an all-pro and putting up just monumental seasons at the other position is something that's really impressive. We're in early April as far as when these individuals passed away. And why don't we move back to the baseball diamond for our next honoree? Sure. Al Kaline, born in 1934, died on April 6th. Known as Mr. Tiger, Kaline played 22 years with the Detroit Tigers and won a World Series with the team in 1968. One of the original bonus babies, he joined the team in 1953 at the age of 18 and never played a day in the minor leagues. K-Line retired with 3,007 hits and remained a beloved figure in the Detroit area, serving as a color commentator and later as an advisor in the Tiger front office. So probably the third or maybe even the second most beloved or most revered player in Tiger's history behind Ty Cobb and... Hank Greenberg, you mentioned that he was a bonus baby. What a bonus baby was is that teams in the 50s, there was this rule where you could pay these kind of astronomical 
amounts of money to players astronomical for the time, but you couldn't send them to the minors. They had to stay on the major league roster. So you had guys, Sandy Koufax was one. I think Brooks Robinson may have been one as well. And then there were a lot of these guys who flamed out, who they were these bonus babies. They played for a couple of years and then they just never, because they didn't get the chance to go to the minors and get that seasoning, they flamed out and never really did anything in the major leagues. A lot of these guys were resented by their older teammates who were making a fraction of what these players, these bonus babies, these teenagers were making. But some of them did manage to stay on and have great careers, or in the case of Al Kaline, legendary careers. He's a Hall of Famer. He is a bit probably of a compiler. If you look at his his other numbers, he does lead the Tigers all-time in home runs with 399, 15-time All-Star, although it's probably worth noting that for a few of those years, at least there were two All-Star games, 10 gold gloves, so he was not just a not just an offensive threat. He was a, a good fielder as well. So a little bit of a compiler, but probably definitely a deserving Hall of Famer. Yeah, and another guy who I think just being such a – he was a baseball lifer. You know, like you said, he came up and was a bonus baby and, you know, was right with the Tigers and then played and then was a broadcaster and sort of how you talked before about the Dodgers. And I, I know K-Line was on the team in 68 when they won, but sort of how you talked before about the Dodgers where there's a certain amount of – and how Khan wrote about, you know, there being – sort of a charm and a, and a love that's engendered by teams that lose. Well, I think on an individual level, the, the sort of analog to that is a guy who's been there forever and was on a lot of last place or bad teams. And I think that's kind of K line was it like, people are always going to have favorite players, whether the team is good or bad. There's a lot less to choose from when the team is bad. So being sort of the standout guy, on bad teams like they were for a good portion of K-Line's career early on was, you know, what endeared him. And then certainly being a broadcaster for all those years after that just wove him into the fabric of that franchise. One of many players, I think eight players who have a statue at Comerica Park in Detroit. So a beloved figure and sort of like you said, the, um, a guy who just spent his whole life in baseball and did it all with one team, which makes it incredibly special. Why don't we move on now? And we're going to go back to the football field and back to green Bay. And we're going to talk about Willie Davis, who was born in 1934 and passed away on April 15th. Davis anchored the defensive line for the green Bay Packers throughout the 1960s. A five-time All-Pro, Davis was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1981 and is a member of the All-Decade team of the 1960s. He remains the team's all-time leader in fumbles recovered. Perhaps the most famous of these came in 1966 when Davis stripped Johnny Unitas, recovering the fumble and sending the Packers to victory in a key late-season game. Davis was a guy who he went on. He was a tremendous success in business after he retired. He was one of the three black defensive players from the Packer defense that I mentioned who passed away this year. And he, I think even more so than many of the others, and they all in later years just expressed this undying love for Lombardi. But Davis, I think he maybe even more so than some of these other guys 
throughout the rest of his life was a guy who just could not say enough positive things about Vince Lombardi. He said, I don't think about my father every day, but I certainly think about Vince Lombardi every day. Yeah. And he was another one who sort of came in right. I think his first year, he was with Cleveland for a couple of years and then came in right as Lombardi's second year, you know, the first year that they really were a very good team and got to the NFL championship game. So kind of came in and then was there until, 69, I believe. So it stayed a few years past Lombardi leaving, but um, had sort of an uncanny knack for fumble recoveries. I think he had like 22 fumble recoveries in his career. 15th round pick, which is twice the number of rounds that exist anymore. I think there's only seven rounds these days. Came in after serving in the U.S. Army as well. So certainly quite an interesting path to ultimately end up on one of the greatest football dynasties of, uh, of all time. And played offense and defense with the Browns, which is crazy. He was an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman in the late 1950s with the Browns. And then, obviously, um, when he got to Green Bay, focused entirely on defense. So he was just – and this is actually a quote from Bobby Mitchell, a guy who we just talked about, saying, the thing that I was impressed with was his ability to turn that tackle loose and run down a running back from the far end. We hadn't seen a lot of that from ball players." He could move from his set position so quickly that he never got the full blow from the offensive guy coming at him, so he seldom got pancaked. All of that was a part of making him great because he could slip and slide away from some of the big linemen who were coming at him. He could move so quick that he'd get into position to make those tackles. He could run down people. In this day and age, we, we quantify everything, and we found so many ways to quantify defense because I don't believe in those days that they really even kept stats for tackles let alone some of the other things like sacks and hurry loss and yeah exactly so you are sort of left with the the anecdotal the few stats that are available like the fumbles recovered and also the sort of the the testimony of some of the players that the guy played with his teammates and davis comes up strong in every single one of those markers. So a great player, a great Packer, a great ambassador for those teams, and sort of another one of these great Green Bay Packers of the Lombardi years that were lost in the year 2020. In 1960, a black man in Green Bay looked as out of place as Little Richard on stage at the Grand Old Opry. But in a 10-year career, Willie Davis took his place as one of the great defensive ends in pro football history. He was the war eagle of the pack of defense, swooping in with wings extended and talons bared. There was no escaping Willie Davis, for this bird of prey flew across a football field. When he was a very small player by today's standards, but gosh, what a competitor. And he got more done, I think, with what he had to offer than anybody I know of. couple of things here you mentioned I, I talked about the recovered fumbles being a Packers career record it's, it's just um, the 
official record for sacks for the Packers, which again, sacks didn't start being counted until 1982 was an official NFL stat. It says Clay Matthews is the all-time official sacks leader with 83 and a half. Um, the, a guy named John Tunney or Turney, who's the statistician, statistician for professional football researchers association projected that Davis had more than a hundred sacks in his 10 seasons and perhaps as many as 120. They asked him about this in 2004. And he said, I would think I would have to be the team's all time leader in sacks. I played 10 years and I averaged in the teens in sacks for those years. I had 25 in one season. Paul Horning just reminded me of that the other day. And a Lombardi quote on him, and you can almost picture Lombardi standing in front of a chalkboard saying this. <laughs> it says, when, when he first came into the, to the Packers, he said, I could, Lombardi said, I, continue, I consider speed, agility, and size to be the three most important attributes in a successful lineman. Give me a man who has any two of those dimensions and he'll do okay, but give him all three and he'll be great. We think you have all three. And I think history bore him out on that. And he also played with Eddie Robinson at Grambling, which I think is worth noting, a historically black college that Eddie Robinson was the coach of Grambling for something like 50 years or something crazy like that. And Willie Davis was one of his players. And so he talked sort of about Robinson sometimes in the same breath as Vince Lombardi with, you know, these two great legendary coaches that he played with. And I think it's just worth noting that Davis was probably the best player on that front seven Willie Wood and Herb Adderley are both and both of them both passed away this year both really great defensive backs and there are whole other hall of famers on that front seven for the Packers Dave Robinson and Ray Nitschke who sort of because just because he's got that sort of larger than life persona mm -hmm. and Henry Jordan who was another defensive lineman who, who actually passed away only a few years after his career ended you you hear sometimes more about Nitschke and about the defensive backs, but Davis probably not only the leader, but probably the best player on those, at least on the front seven of those Packer defenses. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Shall we keep things in the football realm here and continue? Yes, and I think it's your turn. Yes, it is. Mike Mad Dog Curtis, born in 1943, passed away on April 20th. A four-time Pro Bowler with the Baltimore Colts, Curtis played in Super Bowls three and five with the team and was team captain for most of his Colts career. His interception of Craig Morton in Super Bowl V set up the game-winning field goal that gave the Colts the title. War number 32, which was sort of interesting for a linebacker and played on the Colts in both of their Super Bowls that they made in Baltimore, the one in 68 that they lost to Joe Namath and the Jets, and then the one that they won two years later in Super Bowl V. That Super Bowl V, probably the ugliest Super Bowl in NFL history. Picture the, the Patriots-Rams Super Bowl, which is actually ironic that I bring that up because they're actually playing at the moment as we record this on December the 10th, but that Patriots-Rams Super Bowl that everybody thought was so boring, picture a game like that except with a total of 11 turnovers, four turnovers by the losing team, the Dallas Cowboys, and then seven turnovers by the winning team, the Baltimore Colts. By far, I'm sure, the most 
turnovers by a Super Bowl winning team in the 50 some odd year history of the Super Bowl. Curtis, a guy who was a team leader, who was sort of joined with a Hall of Famer, Ted Hendricks, who was known as the Stork, to lead those Colts teams of the late 60s, early 70s. Probably not somebody who should be in the Hall of Fame, and somebody he is not in the Hall of Fame, but kind of one of these guys, these sort of tough, rough-and-tumble linebackers from the 60s and 70s who's just a step below the Hall of Fame. You know, and you mentioned Super Bowl five. Most of, obviously, most of the guys who were on that 1970 Colts team had been on the 68 team that lost to the Jets. Really never got over that, even after they won Super Bowl five. Very famously, if you watch the America's Game NFL Network specials when they started to film them for each team, a good amount of the 1970 Colts episode is them just complaining about not winning in 68. And, and Curtis Kurt- was one of the interviewees in that. And Curtis wrote a book in 1972, sort of in the era of lots of athletes writing, or at the very least, lending their names to books. And he wrote a book that was called Keep Off My Turf. And speaking of that Super Bowl three upset, he said the Jets were lucky that day and that the 1968 Colts were twice as good as the Jets. He, after the Colts was... He was exposed to the expansion draft in 1976 and ended up going to the Seahawks for a year, the first year of the Seahawks franchise. And then after that, came back to the Capital Region and finished his career with two seasons with the Washington Redskins in 1977 and 78. But obviously, all of his, you know, uh, memorable years occurred with those Baltimore Colts teams. And he just sort of fits the era. A tough middle linebacker with a nickname of Mad Dog who wore a number that was not a typical number even then for a linebacker. And it is sort of funny to picture him from going from this sort of rough and tumble Baltimore Colts playing at Memorial Stadium in the cold and the rain and the snow to a football team in Seattle known as the Seahawks. That had to just be a huge culture shock for a guy who was used to playing in the football hotbed of Baltimore for over a decade. And was from from Rockville, Maryland and played most of his career with Baltimore and then came back to Washington. So yeah, I'm sure that year in Seattle was a little bit different for him. He tried to get out of there as soon as possible. I think it's safe to say. All right. Why don't we uh, wrap it up here with one more and it is appropriate that we were just discussing the Baltimore Colts because we have a a former coach of the Baltimore Colts, Don Shula, who was born in 1930 and died on May 4th. The winningest coach in NFL history, Shula coached in six Super Bowls, winning back-to-back titles with the Miami Dolphins in the early 1970s. His 1972 Dolphins are the only undefeated team in modern NFL history. And we can say that is Especially true even through 2020 with the Washington having beaten the Pittsburgh Steelers earlier uh, a few days before we record this. Shula began his head coaching career with the Baltimore Colts in the 1960s, where he clashed frequently with quarterback Johnny Unitas and owner Carol Rosenblum, but led the team to the NFL championship game in 1964 and Super Bowl III in 1968. Shula left the Colts in 1969 to join the Miami Dolphins, where he remained for the next quarter century. While in Miami, he led the Dolphins to five Super Bowl appearances and two world titles. 
He retired after the 1995 season with 347 career wins. Yeah, and, and Don Shula is a guy who I, I remember the tail end of Don Shula's career as a coach, you know, with the Dolphins when they were a decent team, but not a, a Super Bowl contender, really, especially at a time when being in the AFC almost disqualified you from being a championship contender. True. Um, you know, I remember him looking kind of old with the big sunglasses and, and, you know, knowing that they had been very good in years gone by, but I think maybe coming into it just at the end of his career, maybe colored my opinion of him for a long time that, Oh, maybe he wasn't, you know, wasn't all he was cracked up to be, but you know, you look back at the run he had, with the Dolphins winning the two straight Super Bowls, going to three straight Super Bowls in the early 70s, which is a feat that's not often been repeated, that having those, they were a perennial contender really throughout most of the 70s in that loaded AFC. And then in the 80s, when they got to the two Super Bowls in 1982 and 84, and, you know, the the Marino year in 84, when he threw the 48 touchdown passes and, you know, and all of that. And then you can go back to, to as far back as his days in Baltimore. So almost reminds me of a college coach in terms of how long he was there and how he was the organization for so long and was seen as sort of a singular figure and was like a, it was a program, you know, it was like, well, most years they're good. That that sort of thing. He, He almost reminds me of that sort of era that there were guys in the NFL, you know, you talk about Tom Landry and I, I guess Belichick now, but who were just there forever. And it's funny, too, because you forget that he had that sort of first act of his coaching career with Baltimore. And these were Baltimore teams that were very good, that played Lombardi's Packers very tightly, that made it to an NFL championship game in 64 that won an NFL championship game in 68 before losing the Super Bowl. Shula and Unitas had been teammates briefly and they never liked each other. They clashed quite frequently as player and coach. There's a story of Unitas going to church with one of his daughters on a Sunday morning and waving to Shula and then the daughter saying, uh, daddy, who was that? And Unitas saying, Oh, well, that's Don Shula. He's, and then an expletive. So <laughs> two guys that never liked each other, the whole story of Shula leaving the Colts is a really interesting one. It involves sort of Shula being unreachable or I'm sorry, the, the, I believe it was, no, it was, it was the owner, Cal Rosenblum, being abroad and being unreachable to sign off on a new deal while Shula went ahead and negotiated with the Dolphins. As far as his Dolphins career is concerned, really interesting. First of all, he makes it to the Super Bowl with three different starting quarterbacks, and that's uh, Bob Greasy, Dan Marino, and David Woodley, who was the quarterback when they lost to Washington in Super Bowl 17. And if you factor in that, he also went to Super Bowl three with Oral Morrill. He's the only coach to bring four different quarterbacks to the Super Bowl. The other thing that I think is funny about Shula is that he really showed an ability to adapt from an offensive point of view. Now his background was as a defensive coach, but 
he really showed an ability to adapt his offense as a head coach. If you look at the Dolphin teams of the early 70s with Bob Greasy at quarterback and mm-hmm. Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris and Jim Kick, who is somebody else we're going to talk about in a little while, who passed away. That team ran the ball 85, 90% of the time. They'd throw nine passes, 10 passes. In fact, they they won in Super Bowl seven. And I want to take a look here. I think that if if it's possible that Greasy didn't even throw 10 passes in that Super Bowl seven win against Washington. He was eight for 11 in that Super Bowl. And then the following year in Super Bowl, that would have been, that was Super Bowl seven when they beat Washington. And then the following year against Minnesota, greasy through, if you just give me a second here to pull up the box score, where is the box score there? Greasy threw seven passes in Super Bowl, in Super Bowl eight. He was six for seven for 73 yards so just crazy and then you factor in 20 years later 10 years later with Marino and Marino had some of the most prolific passing seasons in NFL history and he made the Super Bowl that way so he really showed an ability to adjust it's possible maybe he hung on a few years too long as coach of the Miami in the early 90s even though they were very good every year. But I remember by the time he was leaving, it was sort of understood that it was time to go, but Hey, the guy won championships. He did it with the Colts. He did it with Johnny Unitas. He did it with Bob Greasy. He did it with Dan Marino, three different hall of fame quarterbacks. So he definitely deserves his position in the upper echelon of NFL coaches. Yeah. And if you look at from when he took over Miami, and you look at below 500 years, so I'm not going to count eight and eight years, but 76, they went six and eight. In 88, they went six and 10. And I believe those are the only two years he was below 500. I may have missed one, but as the coach, and you know, most of those years you're looking at double-digit wins really throughout. And yeah, the last couple of years they were like a nine and seven, 10 and six team, but they were still a perennial playoff team. They got to the NFC championship or the AFC championship game in 1992. And I get kind of a kick out of that thinking had they won that game, they would have played in a super bowl against Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin Cowboys in 1992 with the same coach who coached in super bowl three against Joe Namath. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. That definitely would have been the farthest, I think, between who, who what's what coach now have, has the because he coached in Super Bowl three and then his last one would have been Super Bowl 19 against the 49ers that 16 years apart. Done. Now it's Belichick. Yeah, but the, that, that all kind of feels like one team since it was him and Brady the whole time. Well, Vermeil was close, I guess, 80 to 99. Yeah, that's true. That's Actually, true. It, is, it is still Vermeil because Belichick's first one was 01 and they didn't make the Super Bowl last year. So it is still Vermeil. That's true. That's a good point. It'll probably be Belichick, not this year. But um, yeah, he'll make it in at some point. All right. Well, we made it through uh, probably about a third of the individuals who we wanted to talk about as part of this In Memoriam series. I want to thank Andrew, as always, for co-hosting with me, as well as a couple of our Hello Old Sports colleagues who will pop up uh, throughout this episode and future ones just to give a little preview some of the 
individuals that we'll know, we know that we're going to get to in the next one, Wes Unseld and John Thompson, the, the great Georgetown coach, Tom Seaver, as well as many others. So, Andrew, did you have anything to add before we wrapped it up tonight? No, I think I'm good. Jim Kick, who we also just talked about a little bit with the Miami Dolphins, will be one that we'll get to next week. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us as we wrap up the year 2020. And this has been part one of the In Memoriam series on the Hello World Sports podcast, a part of the Sports History Network. Remember to email us at helloworldsports at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash helloworldsports. You can also please subscribe, like, review, rate, any way you can give us positive feedback and let us know what you think of the podcast. And also if there's anybody out there listening who has somebody who passed away in 2020 that you'd be interested in coming on and joining us to talk about, we can certainly make the time for that. But until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.